This is the Civil Discourse Podcast. I am Kevin Prendeville, and together we will explore the same topic as covered in the video program, but we'll take an extended look and an effort to spark a civil discourse. So as we continue to ramp up here, um, I wanted to get a little further into the topic that we started actually on uh, Connecting the Dots, if you haven't checked that out recently, where we talked a lot of about uh, finance and kind of the beginning of the United States and how important that is. Now, with civil discourse, we're able to focus more on modern-day topics, but everything does have a, a root point, and so I want to focus more so, as we begin this series, on the Civil Discourse podcast, on the Whiskey Rebellion, which happened in the 1790s and how that really kind of coincides with the finance issues uh, of today, which we'll go into more in depth as this series continues. Now, when we look at the Whiskey Rebellion, it's often forgotten. Uh, it's a footnote. Certainly, the way I was taught, it was a, a footnote in the historical textbook. It's kind of an example of the power that the new federal government had. If you'll uh, remember, although not many people do, there was a government before our modern government known as the Articles of Confederation, which was set up right after the uh, fall of, or the liberation from the British colonies. After our revolution, the first government set up was actually much closer to what would eventually become the Confederate States of America in terms of a weaker central leader and the states and their rights were much more pronounced. Now, the Articles of Confederation is an odd government system in the fact that they couldn't even tax. They, the government did not have the legal authority to levy a tax. And as a result, it couldn't even necessarily raise an army when a rebellion would crop up or when there was a dispute and something that needed to be handled, the government simply didn't have all that much money. You know, it was a, a lot of trade regulations and, and some minor tariffs that really couldn't even fund the $54 million of debt that we'd accumulated, that, that figures in 1700s money, that we had accumulated uh, fighting the American Revolution. So the Articles of Confederation naturally was falling apart, and the British had assumed, and this is just kind of a, a interesting side note, that the British had assumed that this meant that, you know, we would eventually kind of fall apart and ask to come back to the British crown, and they would get their colonies back. Obviously, that didn't happen. However, the government that came out of the failure of the Articles of Confederation, which is much closer to the one we have today, with the separation of powers and the stronger president and stronger federal government, the unfortunate, or rather fortunate, American 
ethos was that the government still didn't have a right to taxation, that our ability to privately own our property was something that couldn't be infringed upon by any government, let alone our own government. And so there needed to be a way, and, and Alexander Hamilton, who is obviously well known for his many works uh, in the financial field, but Alexander Hamilton, he realized that in order to raise a strong nation, they needed to have some sort of tax, but he's kind of hamstrung by a populace that does not want to be taxed. So the reason that they taxed or decided to raise a tariff on spirits is because he could levy it as a sin tax that, and I don't mean sin tax like language, I mean S-I-N tax, that the sin tax was in order to get people to socially, you know, stop drinking so much and that it would raise awareness about the effects of alcohol. Now, the effects were manifested in what is known as the Whiskey Rebellion, which was primarily centered in Pennsylvania and was led by actually a revolutionary where he took up arms against the president and attempted to not rebel against the, the, the government, not break away from the government or anything, but try to get a forceful repeal of this tax. And this is what started the Whiskey Rebellion. Now, in our modern system, obviously, the government not only is able to levy taxes, but levies uh, notoriously income taxes, corporate taxes, and all sorts of gas taxes, all sorts of taxation in order to fund many different programs and projects and what have you. But back in these days, the even the idea of the government levying a tax was unpalatable by the general public. Um, and, and there wasn't... Uh, now, I don't want it to seem as though there was this entire, this huge uprising against the federal government. It was about 600 people that actually took up arms. But the feeling was still there that, you know, nearly a thousand men decided to actually do something about it meant that there was, you know, at least a hundred thousand more, I'm sure, that, that were annoyed at this tax, at the very least, if that's the good way to put it, that the reason for this podcast and the reason for going over, you know, the Whiskey Rebellion here is that we, as Americans, have a natural anti-big government, anti-taxation ethos. And I'm worried that we're losing that because we don't teach these people in history that, that do something about it. You know, our own founding really came down to the fact that we didn't want to be tariffed and taxed out of our lifestyle, and rightfully so, you know. I don't think, you look at the Seven Years' War, and the, obviously the British argument was that it was our war and our fighting, but as a colony, we had no representation. And so when you look at something like the modern Tea Party, the Tea Party movement uh, in the early 2010s, it was the same argument. You know, you have the government now that 
funds abortions. It's now, you know, halted under the Trump administration. But you had a government that was using taxpayer money to pay for unpopular practices. You had a government that was attempting to levy even higher taxes for, quote-unquote, free health care. You're going to have a government that wants to give you, quote-unquote, free college. Again, they say it's free, but you're paying for it with your tax dollars, so, you know, there there is a cost there. And, of course, it's going to be disproportionate where the, the most successful get penalized the most. And, obviously, it's distilled down. You're not even buying what you're paying for. That's a whole other topic for another day. Regardless, if we lose this, and this is the argument I'm making here, if we lose this ethos, this anti-taxation ethos, I think we lose what makes us unique. That we just become another European power that's just separated by the Atlantic Ocean. What makes us those hillbilly rednecks that saved the world twice over, and more than that, what makes us the greatest country in the world, what makes us the greatest system of government in the history of humankind, it's not just the great land we were blessed with. What makes us the greatest country in mankind is the fact that we the people limit what the government can and cannot do. And that there is a deep philosophical, deep economic background for this reason. And it's something that cannot and should not be encroached upon. And the only way we lose that is if we stop teaching ourselves our own history. Because it's not just in the Whiskey Rebellion. It's not just in the Tea Party of today. It's not even in the Tea Party of yesteryear. It's in... The arguments of William Jennings Bryan in 1892. It's in the arguments of even some of the Confederate, what became the Confederacy and the Confederate States in the 1860s. It's about the uh, movements in the early 1900s against the income tax. It's about the movements in the same era against the property tax. It's the same ethos that got someone like a Ronald Reagan elected. We believe that we have a right to private property. We believe that we have a right to representation before taxation. But the only way we come to know those rights is by teaching ourselves, not only our own history, but even somewhat of our own Uh, biblical history that America was a Christian nation. The fact that we are willing to let that go without a fight is not disheartening but telling. It's telling of the forces at play here and and who is against us. The anti-Americanism that has seemed to have seeped in across the world, at least on the left, is very palatable. And again, I don't want to make the left out to be the bad guys here, but, you know, you look at their most recent soccer match and 
Well, who's yelling F Donald Trump and I'm embarrassed to be an American? Certainly wasn't the right. Lastly here, the takeaway and the most important thing that we can get out of this brief podcast before we begin this series. The most important thing that we can take away is that the aversion to taxation, the legal necessity of low taxation, isn't universal. It lives and dies on these shores. And it lives and dies with you. We're all our own individuals. We all have a right to own what we own and conduct our lives as we see fit. And we have to ask ourselves if we're willing to give that up. Now, next week, we are going to talk more in depth about the healthcare debate. Again, we're going to come back to the central idea that at the heart of American freedom is the freedom to control our finances. So we're going to discuss how the healthcare debate is portrayed and how it offends those who believe that they have a right to control their own finances. I'm Kevin Prendeville, and I help educate people as to how they're unknowingly and unnecessarily sending tens of thousands of dollars away each and every year to the federal government, financial institutions, and Wall Street. And on average, we identify anywhere from thirty dollars to $50,000 per year that people have no idea they're sending away unknowingly and unnecessarily. And if I could help you identify that for yourself, would you want that back? This is what I do. This is why I'm here.